So welcome to the very first episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intent to place judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods used discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professional services, or methods that may be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee has received consulting fees from Tiva. Dr. Kalangara has received consulting fees from AstraZeneca. Dr. Feynman has received uh, speaker's fees from AZBI Shire and has done research for AIMU, DBV Shire, and Regeneron. Well, anyways... Uh, we have finally started a podcast, a brand new podcast by the college, and I'm really excited to uh, start this endeavor. My name is Jerry Lee. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Emory University, um, and I was just joining the uh, Allergy Watch editorial team, um, and I'm joined by one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Kalangara. Uh, hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm an, also an assistant professor of allergy at Emory University. And then uh, I think for this new format, we're just going to have a rotating chair. So why not pick anyone but a past uh, president for the college and the current editor-in-chief, Dr. Stan Feynman? Yes, Jerry. Well, I I am the past president of the college. I'm now an adjunct professor of uh, pediatrics. uh, I'm sorry, an adjunct associate. I'm an adjunct associate professor of pediatrics uh, in the Division of Allergy. I'm in private practice with Atlanta Allergy and Asthma and a past president of the college and the current editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. Anyways, I just can't contain my excitement about starting a podcast version of Allergy Watch and other topics in allergy immunology. I mean, Maren, I know when I came up to you, you were sort of receptive to the idea as well. I'm not sure. You seem to be very experienced with podcasts in general. I am. Uh, I am a very avid podcast listener, although I'm a little embarrassed to admit that most of my listening so far has consisted of reality TV recaps and the like. But I was very excited when you proposed this idea to me because I think it would be a great platform for us to discuss relevant topics in our field. And when I pitched it to you, Stan, about doing, making a podcast version of information like Allergy Watch, I think you said you didn't listen to podcasts. Well, I'd heard of them, but I quite frankly, I had not listened to them until you introduced me to them. So what have you dove into ever since you've dipped your toe into the world of podcasts? Well, I have, in full disclosure, I've listened to a couple of podcasts uh, through NPR, um, and I probably will do more now that you've introduced me to this format. And uh, I, I think it's a great way. And obviously, it also demonstrates that our way of learning has evolved. Because when this when Allergy Watch started, it was mailed to everyone. And now, it, clearly, there's a need for uh, getting, to, you know, getting uh, the information out besides the mail. Mm-hmm. So for our first episode, we are focusing on Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. So Stan, you joined Allergy Watch at its very inception. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how it got started? That'd be great. Uh, Allergy Watch was the brainchild of Bud Bardana. Bud Bardana is an emeritus professor in the Department of Medicine in uh, Oregon Health Science University. He's a past president of the college, uh, and he, in, in fact, received the Gold-Headed Cane Award 
in 2009 from the college, which is one of the highest honors that a uh, member of the college can receive, uh, recognizing their contribution to allergy. So I spoke to Bud yesterday to get more information about how he came up with the idea of doing a publication like Allergy Watch. And he basically said that he was talking to another past president, Gene Chapman, uh, and they were saying it would be nice to have a uh, publication for members of the college that summarized articles that members might not necessarily read on a regular basis, from journals they might not necessarily read on a regular basis, but that might have relevance to analogist in clinical practice. And that was his goal. And the only really requirement that he had for uh, the college was that it would be free of any uh, influence from industry or pharma, you know, funding influence. So, uh, although there is, you know, some uh, a grant for funding the journal, there is no influence of pharma in terms of selection of articles or any of the editorial content or anything like that. So it's a uh, a very um, high level uh, type of uh, publication. And, uh, you know, over the 20 years, it's been uh, well-received. In fact, it's been translated in uh, Polish and in Spanish for several years. Um, and uh, we, don't, it's, we don't have that now, but it's, you know, available uh, electronically, and it's read uh, around the world in the electronic format, besides the fact that it still gets mailed out. And, you know, I really learned a lot from Al George when I was a college member and started receiving the publications. But the confession I made to you when I joined the editorial team is that I have a pile of allergy watches on my desk that, I mean, I know I want to get that information, but, you know, sometimes, you know, when I get it, I'm not ready to read it. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to read this later. So my hope is hopefully this audio format might be more accessible when you're working out or driving your car. I mean, that's probably when I listen to podcasts. Mostly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> You do that too? Well, mostly during my commute, like I said. But Yeah, and the Atlanta commute is legendary, so <laughs> I'm sure many people have those sorts of commutes uh, uh, and uh, need that information. Well, you know, it's funny, Jerry. I, was, I told Bud that story that you told me that you, know, that you don't really read things that come in the mail. You know, that you prefer to get your information electronically mm -hmm. or through a podcast, something that you can listen to on your own time. And mm -hmm. it... Basically, the fact that we're doing this, I think, is a credit to the college to recognize that it's important to get information to our members uh, you know, that will be helpful for them. And we have to evolve, too. Well, you know, then let's just get the ball rolling and get that out there. So I think uh, we all selected a sampling of some of the articles that will be coming out. Well, I think it just came out just now, the March-April issue issue of algae wash so stan why don't you in, in fact i just received mine in the mail okay <laughs> so i definitely have already read it because i prepared for this session but in general we will give you a sample of some of the things you can look forward to when you receive your issue in the mail so stan why don't you start us off okay well the first uh, article i'd like to talk about was in fact the lead article uh, which is uh, entitled Secondhand, Smoke Expo uh, Secondhand Exposure to Vaping, a Problem for Kids with Asthma. And we made this the lead article uh, because it's an interesting topic that is becoming more and more of a problem. And the article was um, 
reviewed by uh, David Kahn, who is a professor at uh, University of Texas uh, uh, Science Center in uh, Dallas. And uh, he, he does a, an excellent job and has been an editor of Allergy Watch for some time. And the article is from the journal Chest, uh, and it was published in January of uh, this year, 1990, uh, I'm sorry, 2019. And basically, they took youth who participated in a 2016 Florida Youth Tobacco Survey. So these were children who were aged 11 through 17, and they basically answered questionnaires. So they were self-reporting uh, question, on a questionnaire the diagnosis of asthma and whether or not they had asthma attacks and uh, how, you know, how many people, you know, how many of them had problems over the previous 12 months. So overall, 21% of the youth uh, who had asthma, reported they had an asthma attack in the previous 12 months, which is not unheard of when we see that in, in practice. And 33% reported secondhand um, electronic nicotine delivery system, or ENDS, exposure. That's vaping. So the secondhand electronic vaping exposure had a higher odds ratio of reporting asthma attacks in the, la in the previous 12 months. So we know you know, through previous studies and through our clinical experience that real smoke, you know, secondhand smoke, uh, triggers asthma because airways are reactive. Uh, but, you know, when, you know, when you talk to somebody who's vaping, uh, they say, well, it's not really going to hurt you because it's not smoke. So what they did with these, this group of uh, children is they, they basically uh, selected them, you know, whether they, you know, whether or not they used the, uh, uh, the vaping or not, and in fact, uh, interestingly, 16% um, had used it at some point, and 11% were active users, and that was about twice as often as smoke, cigarette smoking. Hmm. So what we're seeing, at least from this study, this Florida uh, Youth Tobacco Survey, was that the incidence of uh, current smoking cigarettes was about um, uh, 4%, Whereas the current use of the vaping was 11%, mm -hmm. which, you know, that's very significant. So, uh, you know, we read in the news that the vaping is a problem. We talk to our patients and we understand that they are vaping. Uh, and I think maybe because that misconception that it's not as harmful mm -hmm. as, uh, as tobacco smoke. But a study like this and their conclusion was that the... Um, Children who were exposed to vaping, they weren't even vaping. These are just second-hand exposure to vaping, uh, had a, uh, uh, at least a significant increased risk of uh, having exacerbation of asthma. So it was about double. The odds ratio was, was um, like 1.27. So it was definitely you know, a higher incidence for the, uh, the group who had the vaping. So David, uh, Dr. Kahn's uh, remark was that uh, basically these data add to the emerging literature that vaping is not as benign as it is promoted to be. And I know it's very popular, but the thing I have to admit is I ask that root question a lot about exposure. Mm -hmm. I don't know I'm getting a lot of positives, so maybe I'm not right, asking the right questions. How often does a patient say, hey, I'm vaping? So I actually elicit that trigger specifically, and I do get a lot of positive responses. I don't see a lot of adolescents and children. It is alarming to see um, how many children have actually been exposed to secondhand e-cigarette use. 
And this is actually a few years old in terms of the survey. And so I know that e-cigarette use has only been increasing since then. So I can imagine that the consequences are even uh, more of an issue right now. And it also makes you wonder, because these are adolescents that they studied. So I just wonder what the effect would be in even younger children who are even more susceptible. Right. And uh, again, I, I think maybe I'm just asking the wrong question, because I think my standard question is, is there any irritants in the in your home, like candles, incense, Febreze, plug-ins, and smoke? But, I mean, I guess you have to say, and vaping. Like, that's sort of that extra mm-hmm. word. Maybe we should be specifically asking our patients. Stan, how often do you see that in your practice? Well, I'm afraid I, I don't ask that question either, or at least I'm going to try to start asking that question. I ask for all the uh, volatile organic compounds that I can think of yeah. plus smoke, yeah. but I you know, need to start thinking about electronic cigarette use because I think it's a, it's a real problem. And, and there's like millions and millions of dollars being made off of it. Right. I mean, right. on the children. It's really it's just, unfortunate. Yeah. It's not on our questionnaire. We need to add it. <laughs> <laughs> Vaping. <laughs> no, I thanks think, for sharing that. Yeah, oh, cool, and cool. I think adult patients are a little more, they offer that information a little more readily too, hmm. as opposed to uh, asking parents about pediatric exposure, et cetera. Is it, does it cost more? I mean, maybe that's the reason uh, I don't see as much often the relative cost between the two. Uh, I have to look into that maybe. I have no idea. That might be another reason I don't see it that often. I don't know the answer. No, that's a great article. Uh, you have one more, right? Uh, I do have another article. Uh, and in fact, uh, just by uh, serendipity, uh, David Kahn reviewed this one as well and selected this for review. Uh, it's from uh, the journal uh, Clinical Experimental Allergy. And it's entitled, Non-Atopic Rhinitis at Age 6 is Associated with Subsequent Development of Asthma. And the background, of course, is we all know that uh, children with allergies do have a predisposition to develop asthma uh, as they get older. So what this article did was uh, take information from the Tucson Children's Respiratory Study. That's been a long-standing, ongoing study that initially... uh, followed the kids and did allergy skin testing when they were six years of age to a variety of uh, inhalant allergens. And, you know, of course, they found allergies. And the, uh, they, they monitored the, the children through the age of uh, 30, 32. And they separated the children into really four groups. Uh, and there were about 520 who met these inclusion criteria. So the four different groups included uh, overall the non-allergic and the allergic, in other words, the allergic had to have at least one positive allergy skin test. And then the non-allergic had negative allergy skin tests. And then they had some who had no rhinitis, and then some who had active rhinitis. And then the allergic children, some who had rhinitis, and some who had active rhinitis, I'm sorry, no rhinitis, and then active rhinitis. So those were your four categories. And none of the children at six years of age had asthma. So that was you know, an exclusion criteria for following. And then they followed them for the 30 years, and they wanted to see who's developing, you know, allergy and, uh, and asthma. And interesting, and because we don't really think that non-allergic rhinitis is going to uh, be predisposing to have, uh, uh, have asthma. We know that allergic is, and in fact, in the study, the odds ratio was almost four times. So it was a four times likelihood of children who had allergic positive skin tests and active rhinitis were going to develop asthma. So that's pretty much known, and we know that. Hmm. But the interesting finding in this report was that there was a twofold 
uh, hazard ratio. In other words, a twofold likelihood of children who had non-allergic rhinitis were also going to develop asthma. And really, in, in the you know, years that I've been practicing, we don't really think about that. But uh, here's a situation where you have a non-allergic uh, child does predispose to develop asthma as well. So I think that the connection between the early life rhinitis, uh, maybe inflammation in the airways, and then the subsequent asthma is really not just explained by atopy or allergy. Uh, it could be just the presence of nasal inflammation could be uh, um, contributing to that predisposition as well. So, uh, you know, when, Dad, when, when Dr. Khan did his review, he in fact stated that, you know, the recurrent infections may be a potential link and Clearly, we need to defer, you know, study this further, but the Tucson Children's Respiratory Study was just a, uh, a wonderful opportunity to you know, glean this data. You know, one of the things, you know, when I think of non-allergic rhinitis in a small kid, I mean, I'm going to not really chronic rhinitis, like they're having episodic infections that are not really chronic, or smoke. I don't know if that study ever addressed that possibility that maybe... This is just tobacco smoke? Maybe, I don't know if they commented on that. So the question about exposure to tobacco smoke, at six years of age, the uh, percentage of children with exposure to tobacco smoke was pretty much even across the board uh, between the two groups. The non-allergic was uh, uh, about 31%, the active rhinitis 33%. Uh, the allergy was 38 active rhinitis 27, right in the 30% range. So not, it was pretty even. Yeah. So, I mean, I thought this paper was interesting because it really makes you think even more about the heterogeneity of asthma. And traditionally, we just always think of your classic allergic onset phenotype driving onset of asthma in children. But this really emphasizes uh, the possible presence of other pathways um, leading to asthma, even in early onset cases. So... Again, we'd love to say everything is due to allergy, but, you know, obviously we treat all forms of asthma as well, but maybe taking that more seriously is definitely a take-home message, especially if we counsel our mm -hmm. patients, well, you're having negative asthma predictive index, you're in the clear. Right. Maybe that might be premature. Right. You're probably right. According to this data, I mean, I think we need to be careful. Right. Yes. I mean, I must admit, when I read this paper, I was... Uh, feeling a little guilty about all the times that I've said, oh, your allergy test is negative. You're more likely to outgrow this reactive every disease, so. Yeah, we'll yeah. just keep uh -huh. an eye on them for a second. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I guess we'll take a break. Okay, well, I think we'll go to the next couple. Uh, Marin, I think you had a couple articles you picked out as well. Um, yes, yeah, so Stan's paper was a nice little segue into my next two, which are both dealing with asthma. And the first paper that I picked talks about predictors of enhanced response to benralizumab. And I decided to talk about this one because we now have all of these biologics available to treat asthma. So how do we choose between them, especially in the absence of head-to-head -head data to guide these decisions? So this paper attempted to identify additional clinical predictors beyond just bloody eosinophils to aid in the selection of patients who might benefit from anti-IL-5 agents. And the authors performed a post hoc analysis of data from two large phase three trials of benralizumab, that is Sirocco and Kalima. And they focused on the 760-odd patients assigned to standard Q8 week dosing. They looked at several different baseline clinical characteristics that could potentially influence the efficacy of benralizumab. Uh, 
and they chose these factors based on those that were known to be previously associated with a phenotype of severe eosinophilic asthma. And these included the use of maintenance oral steroids, concomitant nasal polyposis, baseline FVC of less than 65% predicted, a history of recurrent exacerbations, and a diagnosis of adult-onset asthma. The efficacy outcomes included a decrease in the annual exacerbation rate, which is the main clinical impact of anti-IL-5 treatments, as well as a change in the prebronchodilator FEV1 at the end of treatment. So patients were stratified based on the presence or absence of peripheral blood eosinophilia, and consistent with prior knowledge, an absolute eosinophil count of greater than 300 was associated with a greater reduction in annual exacerbation rates than any other baseline factor evaluated. But all of these evaluated parameters were actually independently associated with enhanced responsiveness to benralizumab overall, and especially in the subpopulation with baseline eosinophil counts of greater than 300. And conversely, patients with none of these features were least responsive to benralizumab. Among those with an absolute eosinophil count of less than 300, the presence of oral steroid use, nasal polyps, and a low baseline FVC had the greatest influence on predicting an enhanced response, and all of these three features are likely indicative of underlying eosinophil-mediated disease, even in the absence of overt peripheral eosinophilia. And while it is possible that those with a combination of all of these baseline features would potentially have even greater responsiveness to benralizumab, this was not addressed due to low patient numbers. And although the authors did find that in subpopulations with combinations of some of these features, enhanced responsiveness was noted in terms of decreased exacerbation rates. So I chose this paper because I thought it was relevant, uh, as I just said, due to the heterogeneity of even well-defined type 2 severe asthma. And what I've found in my experience that is that despite the recruitment of subjects with like a strong with a strong type 2 signal, I've yet to find a uniform response to type 2 targeted therapies. And so it is important to assess patient factors that could potentially be linked with patient treatment response and other predictive biomarkers, especially because currently the way we determine success or failure with treatment of a biologic is based on re-evaluation after a therapeutic trial for a few months, and this study indicates certain baseline clinical factors associated with severe eosinophilic asthma as potential predictors of responsiveness to anti-IL-5 therapy, specifically steroid use, nasal polyposis, low FVC, a history of exacerbations, and adult-onset disease, and can potentially help to guide clinical decisions on the use of benralizumab. You know, I, somehow I feel like a lot of our my patients have a lot of those things as well. So, I mean, I think they found those predictors, but s- still, you know, when I'm facing that choice, a lot of them seem to have common themes as well. You know, you, you're right, and, and I'm glad you brought this article up because, you know, we do have patients with persistent asthma type, you know, TH2 or type 2 mm-hmm. type a- asthma, uh, and we have these new tools available and the question is, which one do you use? And I think that uh, what you, you know, this article tries to address is which you know, agent we should consider with this phenotype. Mm-hmm. And I think it's been well recognized that adult onset type 2 high asthma tends to have a better response to some of these agents. And I think this paper just sort of drives that point home. So the second paper highlights 
recent updates in aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease. And we decided to pick this one because ARD still remains an enigmatic disease in terms of the underlying triggers, etc., but has gained recent traction. And this article highlights that September 28, 2018, commemorated the first AERD Awareness Day. Did either of you know that? No, I didn't, I didn't even know, know there was one. It's probably a so, day for everything. Uh, I, I guess so. Is there an allergic rhinitis day? That would be like everybody, right? <laughs> so as of right now, there is still just a small therapeutic arsenal to treat AERD. And in this slide, several, several recent papers have tried to delineate the role of biologics in AERD. So while the paper that I just spoke about would indicate a potential role for anti-IL-5 agents in AERD based on the fact that this is also associated with a severe eosinophilic asthma phenotype and a combination of all the previously studied baseline clinical characteristics, the exact role of anti-IL-5 therapies for AERD still requires further elucidation. In a cohort of 14 AERD patients, the use of mepolizumab improved the SNOT22 score by 17 points, and this in contrast to a 13-point improvement in all comers with nasal polyps in another study. And similarly, in a phase 2 trial of dupilumab for nasal polyps, 19 of them had a diagnosis of AERD, and this diagnosis was associated with a 2.5-point reduction in the total polyp score at 16 weeks, in contrast to a 0.72-point reduction for all comers with nasal polyps. And the AERD patients also had more prominent improvements in the SNOT22 score and other symptom scores. And it is important to note, though, that these are extremely small numbers and hence cannot really be generalized. Another paper that I thought was extremely interesting that they highlighted was the AERD diet paper. And the rationale behind this is that inflammatory lipids driving the manifestations of aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease, such as prostaglandin D2 and cystinyl-leukotrienes, are derived from the metabolism of omega-6 fatty acids. The author's hypothesis was that reducing the availability of omega-6 precursors would thereby reduce leukotriene production and consequent inflammation. So they conducted this trial of a high omega-3, low omega-6 diet that was high in fish, such as salmon, and low in poultry, eggs, nuts, etc. Uh, Ten patients completed this dietary intervention, and in two weeks, the authors not only saw an improvement in sinus symptoms and asthma control measures, but also noted a decrease in objective measures, uh, urinary leukotriene E4, as well as urinary prostaglandin D2 metabolites. So... This is a natural and potentially beneficial treatment for AERD and that I now routinely recommend to all of my AERD patients as well. Uh, another component of dietary recommendations for AERD may consist of discontinuing alcoholic beverages, unfortunately. And this is based on two recent studies showing a high prevalence of alcohol-induced nasal or bronchial symptoms in AERD up to 83% triggered by even a few sips, while the mechanism is not understood, a history of alcohol-induced respiratory reactions would support a clinical diagnosis of AERD. Also, a recent clinical questionnaire study indicated that Zaluton is actually perceived by patients as being more effective 
as a leukotriene modifier than Montelukast, despite being less commonly prescribed, and this was corroborated by an analysis of prior data showing that the use of Xyluton in aspirin-sensitive asthma um, can increase the FEV1 by about 20%. So to me, the biggest mystery that still remains with AERD is still the fact that the inciting trigger is unknown, the underlying cause of this ongoing inflammation uh, is still unclear, and understanding this is likely to be highest yield in terms of developing advanced therapies. So I'm, I'm more interested than uh, what's your specific advice about that diet? What is there like a handout you give them? Mira? The, uh, I don't give them a handout, but in general, I tell them to eat a diet that's high in fish, low in poultry, eggs and nuts. And this is just based on uh, information from browsing the web and finding what foods are rich in. But you don't tell them to take supplements or anything like that. No, I do not. But that's an interesting idea. I don't know. I mean, they're finding the difference between the real thing or supplements. So maybe mm-hmm. that's not the best course. So I, I, you know, it's always interesting that we're finding different ways to treat therapies other than let's throw medicine at it. And certainly I think allergy is one of those specialties that try multimodal approaches to treat disease. And I think this is one example where we have different weapons to treat a condition right. other than just, you know, let's give you a lot of aspirin or give you a lot of steroid. Exactly. Right? I mean, and it's so funny because when I was in fellowship and patients would ask me about an AERD diet, like the salicylate free diet, I would just be like, no, there's no such thing. And, you know, and now it's uh, something that I'm actually recommending to them. Yeah, we, we have, you know, we, we do have handouts about salicylate free diets. Uh, but I think your point is very well taken that, uh, uh, as we learn more about the pathogenesis of uh, triggers of some of these uh, conditions that we treat, uh, lifestyle changes may be critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just need to know how to advise them properly. No, I definitely would want to do everything I can. You know, if there's certainly one thing that's going to be helpful, and I think patients do appreciate that holistic approach. They, they mm-hmm. I think they really respond to that a mm-hmm. lot, for sure. Yeah. Um, no, I think, no, definitely. I feel like multimodal therapy is going to be an important component of a lot of what we treat, but especially in something like this that's so recalcitrant and so poorly understood. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's take another break. I'll just round out the rest of the articles. I picked two immunodeficiency-themed articles. Um, I've always been interested in immunodeficiency. That was the hook that got me into the field, and certainly those are the more challenging cases that I enjoy uh, the challenge working with. And so obviously expanding my knowledge base, having the Clinical Immunological Society meeting in Atlanta was wonderful to see the, the latest and, and, and understanding the mechanism of why things happen. I think the why question is one of those things that what makes immunology so satisfying. So I think this article sort of dovetails off that continuing quest for the why. Because common variable immune deficiency is one of those questions where we don't have that why question. We've always recognized it as a syndrome, mm-hmm. and you, you just meet this lab criteria, so you got it. But since there's so much heterogeneity in that condition, um, there's a huge knowledge gap about what's going to happen when you make the diagnosis. What's their destiny? We have these biomarkers that are emerging, like you know, switch memory B cells, but you know, we're on the continual quest of counseling our patients and, and you know, what's the implications to their family and their future 
uh, prognosis. So this is an article that was in the Journal of Clinical Allergy and Immunology, um, and this came from Europe. And basically, this used the National Health Service uh, NIHR Bioresource Rare Diseases Study. So in the UK, they actually have volunteers and patients with rare diseases who undergo whole genome sequencing. They sequence the entire genome. And it's this big data concept of collecting as much information as possible and then using bioinformatics to learn more about these rare conditions because they're so infrequent and so complex that obviously the more information we can glean, the more insight we can get. And so they were able to get 390 cases of common variable immune deficiency and look at what are the most common uh, variants that identify in this cohort. And interestingly, in that cohort, about 4% of their CVID cohort had this uh, had variants in the nuclear factor kappa B1 gene or N of kappa B. And so ultimately, that sort of came out versus everything else as the number one monogenic cause of common variable immune deficiency. Now, when they sort of looked deeper into these patients, what they were able to find is that, you know, we typically think of common variable immune deficiency as infections only or those with the non-infectious complications. And so certainly this cohort did have those non-infectious complications. 48% of them had unexplained splenomegaly. 48% of them had that autoimmune disease, you know, such as autoimmune cytopenias, Coombs positive hemoglobinemia, or ITP. And uh, lymphadenopathy in 24%. And, and so, you know, as we find more information about these patients, what they were able to find is this interesting biomarker where even if you had the variant, you don't know, you know, are you going to present later in life or do you have the existing disease? And what they were able to find that of the patients who had this disease-causing variant and they did immunophenotyping and found B cells that did not, had low expression of the marker CD21, those were the more affected patients versus the carriers, right? So again, we do know that a lot of these genes likes in CVID have incomplete penetrance. So how do we get more information to say, what's the meaning of this genetic test? And so here's another, so you know, you go one step further and you know, you can do follow-up testing to sort of say, well, then I think we need to be very careful uh, with you because of this finding. So uh, I think overall, the other thing that interests me about this paper is that it was referenced in that CS meeting because, you know, we know of NF-kappa-B's role, right? It's sort of the engine of inflammation in the innate immune system. is actually downstream of multiple signaling pathways. But there was this very interesting literature coming out about its dual role, right? So if we think of NF-kappa-B's role in that early warning system for inflammation, these loss-of-function type of mutations seem to cause immune deficiency, like common variable immune deficiency. But... There's this other sort of, you know, flip side that gain of function that's also been reported is sort of auto-inflammatory, and then you sort of have uncontrolled inflammation, and you know, understanding the the mechanism was important to that. So there's this 
P50 binding subunit that um, if there's the uh, if the mutation affects that particular uh, subunit and affects the binding to the the target uh, DNA, then that seems to be more of the loss of function. But then again, there's these activating mutations as well. So I, I think that's the other thing that's so interesting to me. That's how you have that single gene, and depending on where it is, switching on or off has immensely different uh, phenotypes. Yeah, Interesting. So I mean, of... but you're right about immunology. These experiments of nature are helping us understand how this, you know, whole immunologic pathway works. So, uh, uh, you know, if we can identify, you know, more of these patients with CVID and you know, maybe help, uh, help them, in, you know, with therapies, and if this is a marker, that'd be uh, helpful. So this paper was reminiscent of the STAT1 and STAT3 mutations with gain-of-function and loss-of-function mutations producing completely unique effects. And uh, so I thought that was interesting. So I guess the main thing, the main question now with the identification of these mutations is the clinical impact. And as of right now, I don't think that uh, it changes anything, correct, in terms well, of the management? the thing that is intriguing to me is how in the past decade or so, there's been this precipitous drop drop in the cost of genetic testing, right. where at the CIS meeting, genetic testing is now happening very early in the workup, mm-hmm. where if you think about all the tests you might do to characterize a patient, right. it may be cheaper to genetically test them and then validate the result based on the genetic test rather than do a shotgun approach and then test what fits that phenotype. It's hard for me to like right. adjust to that, but that seems to be a very common theme. And this is sort of how we are now identifying the meaning of what we come out of these sort of whole exome sequencing tests that are being right. ordered more commonly now. Right. I mean, I just remember from, you know, my fellowship days when we'd ordered this whole list of like individual lab tests looking for very specific defects. Whereas right now, I move very quickly to whole exome because you just get the most bang for your buck, I would say. No, it, yeah. it seems to be. And, and I don't I haven't seen that cost effectiveness study, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that there's going to be evidence that comes out that ends up being cheaper. And by goodness, why would... You know what are we going to do with all that extraneous information? Is the flip side. So, again, I think that these are the challenges of sort of the the next you know twenty years of how medicine is practiced. Well, it's yeah. like any technology; we have to learn how to use it properly. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But it's exciting. Mm-hmm. Exciting, but you know, uh, again, uh, you have to keep up. It's it's moving quickly. So the next one I want to talk about is really relevant to our day to day practice when people come to us asking the question, do I have a primary immune deficiency or immune deficiency disorders? We see patients with recurrent sinus infections, ear infections, pneumonias, and certainly we know there's a long list of reasons. And so we rely on antibody functional testing where we look at their response to vaccines to give us insight if the immune system is working or not. Now, this is a study published by Baylor in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in 2018, where they saw 48 patients with a diagnosis associated with immune deficiency, and they did something very interesting. They drew blood, and they split it in half, 
and sent the serum to two different labs to do the 14 serotype panel for streptococcus pneumoniae. And they have that traditional definition of 1.3 microliters per ml as the cutoff for protective. So, you know, when they did this sort of methodology, they found that there are multiple instances where the two labs provided two different uh, interpretations of that panel. So sometimes there would be a situation where one lab would have two out of 14 protective, while the other lab would have 11 out of 14 protected. And so if we use that traditional cutoff of 50%, you responded, and under 50%, you didn't, or even 70% for adults, that's two totally different interpretations of the test. Interestingly, when they look at the panel of 45 patients, 14 of the 45 had consistently higher numbers of protected levels by one out of two, uh, one of the, out of the two laboratories. And so what they found is that they would have made different conclusions about the interpretation of that result. So imagine you have a patient that come to your office and it's possible that where you sent that panel, which is typically determined by whatever your insurance covers, could you could come back to that patient and say, oh, you responded to the vaccine or, oh, I'm very concerned you didn't. And that's so interesting. That's interesting because we really rely tests to support the clinical uh, phenotype. But when we get that test, sometimes we reassure patients. And so maybe if we know that, you know, there is going to be sensitivity problems with the pneumococcal testing, depending on the lab, we should probably be more cautious about counseling our patients. Or if the story seems very suggestive, maybe we should just convince ourselves a little bit more before we reassure that patient. Because I do think that pneumococcal testing for me was the, you know, the buck stops here test. Um, and I'm, now I'm really rethinking that. You know, we are really dependent upon our tools. And the lab study is a tool. And you have to clinically correlate your patient with the whole, you know, clinical situation. And if the lab doesn't fit or something, you know, doesn't seem to, uh, you know, be correct with the patient, then, uh, you know, we have to maybe plan B or do it again or go to another lab. I mean, it, it's very disconcerting to have this kind of report because we are dependent upon our labs. I am actually of the opinion that um, pneumococcal titer testing is highly flawed. Hmm. And so I used to be of the same opinion as you where the buck stops here with this test in terms of screening for specific antibody deficiency. But the criteria that we use to diagnose specific antibody deficiency doesn't do a great job at distinguishing even between healthy controls and immunodeficient patients because there was this one paper that showed that our current criteria classified more than 40% of healthy subjects as having specific antibody deficiency. So we could be overdiagnosing it as Correct. well. Yeah. Mm. So not just underdiagnosing. I think overdiagnosing is more of a problem. And I think especially like I get a lot of referrals to screen for specific antibody deficiency in patients with chronic sinusitis, et cetera, where I think it might not really be necessarily indicated. And because 
these tests are known to sort of overestimate the protective threshold. And so I actually think that it increases my concern for inadequate, you know, it just increases concern for inadequate response, even when there is perfectly normal protective immunity. Oh my goodness. And, and, you know, I do know that it is a very difficult antigen to respond to sometimes. And so, you know, it's, you Um, know, possible that that's, not unexpected that, you know, the, the T-cell independent response to a pure polysaccharide vaccine is just challenging in general. And these sort of cutoffs maybe need to be reexamined. This cutoff, I, I agree because um, I know that the 1.3, first of all, like I don't think it can be applicable widely to every single serotype of pneumococcus, first of all. And then secondly, there's also some data showing recently that as point zero zero that a 0.35 cutoff might be more representative of protective immunity because a lot of these antibodies that get generated um, that were used to develop the original criteria were actually non-protective. So uh, in general, I'm just very cautious when ordering and interpreting pneumococcal titers. It's not my favorite test. Yeah, and I think in general that, um, again, that going back to the patient and what fits or not, you know, certainly isolated chronic sinusitis, we're going to really have to rethink about, is that really a global immune deficiency if it's isolated to the upper airway and isolate? Yeah. I mean, I just think that you have to be cautious before labeling somebody with an immune deficiency. And uh, there is an increasing impetus for whatever reason to label people with chronic sinusitis with specific antibody deficiencies. So, No, it's definitely something we need to think about. All right. Well, I think that's all the articles we wanted to review today. Um, I don't know if you had any final thoughts. I thought this was really, this went very well. And I was very excited that we had the opportunity uh, to tell you about these articles. Um, You know, since this is our first pilot episode, I think we would all really appreciate your feedback, any suggestions, and of course, correction. I, I think we're always wanting to learn from the community. So if you had any thoughts about anything we discussed today or any questions, um, we are going to make an email address that you can send us your comments or corrections. It's allergytalk, one word, at acaai.org. And, you know, once this eventually goes online, uh, please send us a review, uh, rate us on iTunes or whatever uh, platform you're going to listen to us on. Um, again, I wanted to thank uh, Marin, my co-host, and then our guest host, thank you. Stan. Thank you. And we want to thank the college for yes. supporting this effort. I think that the uh, you know, college as a, uh, as, as a collegial uh, organization of clinical allergists who practice and see patients on a regular basis, uh, this is another effort for the college to really help uh, disseminate accurate information to our members and hopefully help them in their clinical uh, practice. All right, this wraps it up. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thanks.